Hi. How are we today? I haven't done this in a while. It's been about it's been about a year actually, I think. Um Everybody have a good week. That's good. I'm glad. Wasn't worship amazing? That was really good. Thank you, Aaron and Faith, for leading us into the presence of God together. Um, I, uh, I don't do this often, but I, I do enjoy the opportunity when I get it. Um, so today, I'm going, to, I'm going to give a little preamble here. Is that what you would call it? Disclaimer? Preamble? Maybe they're both. Whatever. This isn't the Constitution. It's not a preamble. So, I don't know. I'm expecting some odd looks today. I'm expecting, who knows, you may run me out of the church after this. I don't know. It's fine. Whatever. But this is something uh, that God's been stirring on my heart for a long time. And, uh, you know, Ryan and I have talked about this extensively. But uh, let's just pray before we get into this. Um, Jesus, we just thank you for today. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you spoke your words to prophets long ago, God. And God, I thank you that every word that you declare comes to pass. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, I, I, I just pray that you would give us open eyes, open hearts, open minds today as we search your word to seek out the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... I gave this a long title, not that the title really matters, but this is called The Lens of Hope in Prophetic Fulfillment. The Lens of Hope in Prophetic Fulfillment. Now today, obviously, a lot of times here, when we talk about the prophetic, we talk about prophecy and all that, we're talking about prophetic gifts, we're talking about um, words of knowledge, stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about today is like Old Testament prophecy written recorded words. Specifically today, we're going to be looking in the book of Daniel. Now, some of y'all, that gives kind of like spooky, eerie feelings because it's, it's mystical and, and, and what the light that it's, that it's been interpreted in. Um, and I want to tell you today, we're going to look at some things in a little bit of a different light. And I think it's going to give you hope and it's going to give you some freedom. So you guys ready for that? All right. Now, I love it when people follow along and actually open up and search their Bibles. That's fine. I don't know that I will actually give you the complete time to do that because I have a lot of scriptures today. So they will be on the game controllers on each side of the sanctuary. Uh, <laughs> if one of them gets stuck, somebody go up and press X and we should be able to get out. Um, so I come before you with this word today in a spirit of humility, hoping and praying that you will receive it. Pray on it digest it and allow hope to arise within you as your paradigm is partially shifted. Now, um, what is a paradigm? It's not two dimes. It's not 20 cents. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Thank you. A paradigm um, specifically in the field of like science or philosophy is a structure of thought. We could look at it as like a lens. We could look at it as like, you know, a lot of y'all wear glasses in here today. So everything you see comes through that lens. Every bit of light 
comes through that lens. It, it, your lens changes the light waves. It magnifies stuff. So you're seeing things on the other side of that. So what a paradigm is in this context is any thought or belief pattern we have that we filter all of our life experiences, we filter everything that we read, we filter everything that we go through, through that lens, that paradigm. Okay, so we could say that we know here, if, right, if we don't know this by now, then we need to reevaluate some, but we know that God is good, right? We know that every good and perfect thing comes from above. So because we know that, we can evaluate and we filter our experiences through that lens, right? Like we know that God is good. We know that things are working in our favor, right? On the flip side of that coin, a lot of people um, grow up thinking that God is just this angry God because of maybe they had an angry earthly father or whatever. So, So their lens of God, their paradigm, the way that they interpret God is shaped by that. So does that make sense what I'm talking about with a paradigm? So this can, this can be applied in any area of life. Any belief we have, any long-held belief that we have about something that we think is going to happen can affect everything in the middle, if that makes sense. All right. So um, this is Merriam-Webster's definition of a paradigm in this sense. It's a philosophical and theoretical framework of a scientific school of discipline within which theories, laws, and generalizations and the experiments performed in support of them are formulated. It can be applied to philosophy, religion also. So we often look at scripture based on what we've already been told, right? For better or for worse, you know, we all, like, nobody's perfect. Nothing's perfect. I mean, we've all had really good Bible teachers throughout our history, we've probably had some that might have twisted the word a little bit to, to mean something that it shouldn't have meant also, right? We've seen the word be used and abused through the years a lot. Um, so when it comes to some prophetic fulfillments, speaking about Old Testament prophecy specifically, our entire paradigm of that is based on a set of speculations or best guesses which often circumvents our need to maintain scripture as our sole interpretive authority. What I'm saying is, there's some things I believe, and I'm not asking you by the end of this to adopt my opinion necessarily, but there are some things that are more speculative than they are biblical, that we've been told for years and years and years. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole can of worms of this, but we're just going to look at a couple of different passages of scripture, and I'm going to let you think about the implications for yourself. Are we good with that? You following me so far? All right. So I believe this has been especially true with some biblical prophecies that we've been taught are awaiting a future fulfillment. All right. Now, this is where I'm going. Um, We have a responsibility as believers, as followers of Christ, as students of the word, to study these things out that we've been given and that we've been taught. That's anything. We have a responsibility for that, right? To discern the word, to rightly divide the word of truth. Amen? All right. So it's easy to just take what we've always known and what we've always been told and never look at it from another angle. Could you turn this down just a little bit, Alex? Thank you. Um, 
it's easy to just take that and go with it because that's the way it's always been. That's the status quo. But let me tell you, the word of God is living and active. It's alive, right? So I think we do ourselves a disservice when we just have presupposed things. Anyway, um, John Ray, can you put up 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21, please? And all of this is... America, I've got New American Standard on here, so it'll be mostly the same. Um, starting at verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Examine everything carefully. This could be prophecies given to you, or this could be the prophetic. This could be anything in scripture. Hold fast, study it out. Hold fast to what is good, all right? That's the spirit we're going about this in. We're going to hold fast to what is true and what is good. We can't just be satisfied with accepting every teaching we hear without studying it out, no matter how widely accepted it is. According to the author of the book of Acts, doing this makes us more noble-minded believers. Let me show you. This is Acts 17, 10, and 11. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these, speaking of these Jews in the synagogue, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So we can be more noble-minded believers by examining the scriptures to see if what we have been taught is so. Do we agree with this here? All right. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, or rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what we want to do, right? That's all we want to do. I have two simple goals with this today. That's it. I'm not, I'm not trying to step on toes. I'm not trying to make anybody mad. I'm not trying to, to influence everything that you think or believe. But... I have two simple goals. Number one is to glorify Jesus. If something glorifies Jesus more than, than the belief I hold about it, I'm going to go to the belief that glorifies Jesus more. All right? Number two, to inspire hope in his finished work. All right? With all that being said, are you guys ready to dive into some scripture? All right. If you got your Bible and you want to follow along, whatever, let's go to Daniel chapter 2. I'll give you a minute to turn, whoever's turning. It's, it's very rare. I, I used to tell, when I, when I used to do youth, I joked with them all the time. I loved the sound of rustling pages. Like when people would, when everybody had a paper Bible with them and they would turn, oh, it's just a nice sound. I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. <laughs> so Daniel chapter two. So just to give kind of a backdrop, this is the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. In this second year, he had a dream that greatly, greatly troubled him. Um, none, of, none of the king's sorcerers, soothsayers, none, nobody could tell him what the dream meant. So the king was so angry that he was going to have all the wise men of Babylon killed, which would have included Daniel, because Daniel was one of the wise men. So when Daniel heard this, he prayed to the Lord to see if he could get the interpretation to, 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 to save everyone. Um, 
Daniel prayed to the God of heaven and was given the interpretation for this dream. So starting at verse 31, this is chapter 2, verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and this stone struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, so this is... This isn't Daniel interpreting the dream. This is Daniel telling the king the dream that he had. <laughs> um, so following this set of verses, then Daniel gives him his interpretation. So remember, we've got a statue. It's got four different materials in it, but it's all one statue together. Um, starting at verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. All right, so he is the first king. This is the head of gold of this statue. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you under him. It's the next part of the statue. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. All right, so he's gone through four different kingdoms. This is talking about a span of time, right? So... This is the king of Babylon. Babylon is the head of gold. The king is, right? So then below him, Medo so if you read in your Bible, most Bibles tell you what these kingdoms were. It's historically verifiable. Medo-Persia was the next, the Persian kingdom. Then Greece. Then the iron is Rome at the bottom. So this is four successive kingdoms, right? And then the last one, starting at verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So this is a lot. This is a lot of prophetic language. But simply, 
God was showing the king the future, saying, this kingdom is here, then this kingdom will come, then this kingdom will come, then Rome will come, and then in the divine kingdom, the stone, who do you think the stone is that was cut out without hands in this prophecy? Jesus, right? Okay. So the stone comes and he crushes the iron kingdom and then his kingdom, it says in the days of those kings, these kings right here, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. All right, we're just gonna leave that there for a minute. That's just the natural reading of this text, right? If you had never seen this before, this is, this is what we have, all right? So this is a pretty straightforward prophecy. History bears witness that there were indeed four successive kingdoms in this time period, beginning with Babylon and ending with Rome. What I really <clears throat> want to focus on is those last couple of verses about the divine kingdom. Um, so now what we're going to do, I know this is, this is a lot of like kind of mystical prophetic language, but that's okay. We're going to, we're going to make it plain. Let's go to Daniel chapter nine. I'll give you a minute to turn there, starting at verse 20. Have, have, how many of y'all just by a show of hands have seen or read these prophecies before? Daniel two and Daniel nine. Um, what, what context were they read? What, what was it always presented in? I'm just curious. Like, what was it talking about? Okay, thank you. That's what I was wondering. Um, let's look at Daniel 9, starting at verse 20. <clears throat> now, while I, while I, Daniel, was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. So Daniel, in this chapter, he is praying, he is crying out to God for the sins of Israel. He's praying for mercy. Um, and then the angel Gabriel comes and delivers this message to him. Uh, he gave me instruction, this is verse 22, and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. All right, buckle up. Here we go. This part of the vision, we got numbers, we got years, we've got weeks, we've got all kinds of stuff. So follow along. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. It's talking about Daniel's people. It's talking about Israel. It's been decreed for Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It, it, speaking of the city, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for the one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. 
And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, we got through it. We made it. We're all okay. Nobody died, right? All right, we made it through the prophecy. So let's take a look at this. 70 weeks. All right, so in this, all... I haven't seen any scholars that disagree with this. The 70 weeks here is referring to 70 weeks of years, or 490 years. All right, we can look at the prophetic language of the day. We can see this. Genesis uh, 29, 27. Um, Fulfill the week of this one, and we will give thee the other also for the service, which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. So he's talking about a week. He's talking about years weeks of years. And then if we look at Leviticus 25, 8, I'm just showing you that this is how the prophetic language was used. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and there shall be unto thee the days of seven Sabbaths of years, even 40 and nine years. Okay, so we see years and days are often like, so this is 70 weeks. A week is seven days. If we're looking at days is years, 70 weeks of years adds up to 490. Does everybody agree with that? Right, cool, awesome. If we take this biblical precedent, obviously, oh, I already said that, got ahead of myself. 70 weeks of years would be 490 years. So if we follow this timeline with historical facts of history that we can go look at, we can verify, um, there are some pretty divinely remarkable things that happen. And a lot of this is very widely agreed on. Um, if you'll notice in the passage of scripture, Gabriel divided the 490 years into three parts. So if we look at Daniel 9.25, we're going to look at the first 69 weeks of this prophecy. The first 69 weeks would be 483 years, if, you, if you're doing the math in your head. So that's 7 plus 62 weeks. So Daniel 9.25 says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's, en that's enough. We'll stop right there. So from the decree being issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, comes, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I didn't realize I said three score and two weeks. It's the same thing. Um, so, sorry, give me just a second. So this is a precise timeline that Gabriel gives Daniel for the coming of the Messiah. Um, so I'm going to take an excerpt from a, a book I've been studying. I can give it, you guys, I've got all the, my notes here if anyone wants to see them later. Um, um, in 457 BC, King Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia at that time, decreed that the Jews were free to return to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. This is recorded in Ezra 7, 12 through 26. If we add 483 years to that date, we come to the year A.D. 27. So from this decree to A.D. 27. That was the year, scholars agree on, in which Jesus was water baptized and began his public ministry. To accurately calculate this, it's necessary to know that Jesus, this was kind of confusing when I was doing the research on this, but it was necessary to know that Jesus was actually born in 4 BC, not 0 AD, which means that he was 30 years old in AD 27. So going along with the footnotes, this is how we know that. Um, historians know and agree on the fact that Jesus was born, was not born in the year zero, 
but he was born in 4 BC. We know this because scripture records that he was born while Herod was still alive. King Herod was still alive. And King Herod was recorded as dying in 4 BC. So we know that happened. Um, the confusion of this date is due to a miscalculation made by Dionysius Exegus in the 6th century, who was a monk that was commissioned by the Pope to reform the Western calendar around the birth of Christ. So he reformed it around the birth of Christ, but he missed the mark a little bit. But we're close, right? It's fine. Um, so let's look. Oh, yeah, and then also, this was a cool fact. So the accuracy of this prophecy about AD 27 being when Jesus started his earthly ministry. This, the accuracy of this prediction was so remarkable that skeptical scholars in the, early uh, in the early 20th century used to argue that the book of Daniel must have been written after the fulfillment of the prophetic events. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls between 1946 and 1956 finally proved that it was written before this. So like the accuracy of this prophecy has always thrown people off. It's an amazing thing to see. So let's look back at Daniel 9.26. Y'all still with me? Yes. All right. Then after the 62 weeks, so we're talking about after the 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. I just want to look at that first little part there. Um, so the Messiah being cut off after this period of time. What, if you're reading this straightforward, we know that this was till the coming of Messiah the Prince. So what is it talking about that the Messiah would be cut off? His death, right? Okay, good, we're doing good. All right, so the Messiah was cut off after this time. And then we want to look about what is, um, can you put 926 back up there, John Ray? So at the end of that verse, it says, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and even unto the end shall be war. Desolations are determined. So this is the part where this always gets pulled out into the future, talking about end time stuff. But I want to submit to you today, I don't believe that's what this is talking about at all. I actually believe that you have to do great murder to the text to make it say that, to do that. If we're reading this along just like it is, what is the end it's talking about? All right, what is the end it's talking about? So 490 years is what was decreed to the people, right? This is 490 years of all this stuff going on. But then at the end, it talks about this happening. I believe, and I believe I will show this out in the rest of this, that the end it's talking about, it's talking about the end of the old covenant. This is talking about the end of the old covenant before Jesus establishes the new covenant in his blood. All right? Look at this. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, um, verse 28, um, says, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Can I submit to you that the latter days talked about here, we always pull that into the future. That's what we always do. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the latter days of this prophecy. It's talking about the latter days of the old covenant. All right, so let's just, even if you don't agree with me there, 
just take this viewpoint. I'm not having to make any jumps to do this. This is just taking this from the text, all right? Um, so what in this verse, what is the city and the sanctuary um, spoken of? Um, the city is talking about Jerusalem, right? And the sanctuary is talking about the temple. So if we look back at Daniel 9.26 again, it says, then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. What city? Jerusalem and the sanctuary of the temple. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. That part of it is not what I'm getting to today because I'm not going to have time. There's, there's enough in the first part of this um, to keep going. Um, but that happened, historically verifiable. Um, most scholars and historians agree on the interpretation of the first 483 years of this prophecy. Practically everyone does. Um, I'm aware I'm getting lost. I, I made this font way too small. I can't follow it. Where I'm going to present something different to you today is the 70th week of Daniel. This is what everybody starts to disagree on. People will fight you over this, I have found. So... All right, let's talk about end times for a minute. Because I wasn't gonna, I'm not presenting this from, from that lens exactly, but it has to do with it. All right, so the 70th week of Daniel is what um, by a lot of scholars, a lot of um, the view, the, the, the commonly held viewpoint in the church in the last 150 years is called premillennial dispensationalism. Okay, so the primary viewpoint of that is that the 70th week of Daniel is in the far future. So the 483 years of this prophecy went off without a hitch, just like it said. But when Messiah was cut off, this last week is saved for some time in the future. Um, when the Jews return to their homeland, and then that's the seven-year tribulation. That's where we get the seven-year tribulation from. That's where this all comes from, is this 70th week. Um, they call this the parentheses or the gap theory. And inside the parentheses theory is where we live right now, according to this. We're in a parentheses called the church age. They call it an unforeseen gap, is what they call it. All right? So, I have a couple of problems with that. Number one, if you read this prophecy and the interpretation straight through, there's no gap implied anywhere. Would you agree with that? If we just read this straight through, there's no gap implied in this prophecy. Number two, there's no biblical precedent for a gap like that. None. If anybody knows of one, please come tell me later. But there, I, I, I can find there is no biblical precedent for that. <laughs> Number three, Man, this is a ref verse reference I meant to write down, but somebody tell me what verse this is where it says, the Lord surely does nothing unless he reveals it to his servants, the prophets, right? Don't you think a 2,000 plus year gap in this prophecy would be something that they would have foreseen? I'm just, just saying, just saying. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to be argumentative here. I'm just saying. All right. So there to make this work, to, to make that belief work, there has to be an indeterminate amount of time inserted here. Indeterminate. It's called the church age. That's what they call it. So, so we're living in that. Um, most of our forefathers, most of the early church fathers, this is what people don't know. 
the vast majority of them did not adhere to this. This has only been popularized within about the last 150 years, starting with the Schofield Reference Bible. That's where it first came on the scene. Um, so Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said, For let us not suppose that the computation of Daniel's weeks was interfered with, or that they were not complete, but had to be completed afterward in the end of all things. For Luke most plainly testifies that the prophecy of Daniel was accomplished at the time when Jerusalem was overthrown. If you don't know, Jerusalem was overthrown in 70 AD by the Romans. Jesus's earthly ministry was recorded as being only three and a half years. All right? That's going to be important here. Eusebius, another early church father, wrote, Now the whole period of our Savior's teaching and working of miracles is said to have been three and a half years, which, all right, let's go back to the prophetic language when we were talking about weeks of years, right? So if a week is seven years, what is three and a half years? Half a week. Thank you, Joe. Joe, Joe is the best student. He gets us gold star today. <laughs> um, after Jesus dies or was cut off in scripture. He was and is the ultimate sacrifice. Would we not agree with that? Yeah. All right, let, let's look at something one more time. I just want to show you this. So um, I'm going to start at uh, verse 26, Daniel 9, verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he, this is where a lot of the debate happens, and he. Who is this he that is talking about? We've been told for a long time that the he is a future antichrist right here that gets inserted. But I'm here to submit to you that this is talking about Jesus right here. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week... He will put a stop to sacrificing grain offering. Can I tell you that Jesus was on this earth? He did his earthly ministry for three and a half years. And at the end, in the middle of that week, he put an end to sacrificing grain offering. Why? Because he died as the ultimate sacrifice. He did it. He put an end to it. All right, now look at this. Look at this with me. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come like a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, the reason, the, the subject of these verses is the Messiah. He, the Messiah, right? It says the people of the prince to come. That's where people twist this around. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice a grain offering. Jesus did that. There is no need for the blood of bulls and goats anymore. There is no need for the blood of bulls and goats ever again in the future. Can I tell you that? If so, then why did Jesus die? It was a complete sacrifice. All right, so in this church, we believe, we believe in, in healing, right? We believe in the prophetic, right? We believe in on earth as it is in heaven. Can we look at the end of Daniel chapter 2 again, at the end of that passage? It says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom 
which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. All right, this, this isn't talking about, in my opinion, this is not talking about sometime way in the future. This is talking about what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus said while he was walking on this earth, he said so many times, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, right? He didn't say part of the kingdom is here, did he? He didn't say a little bit of the kingdom is here. He said the kingdom of God is at hand, right? You guys following along with me? Are we okay? So what of the last three and a half years? Because we've talked up to that. So in, in Daniel's 70th week, the 70th week of this prophecy, after the three and a half years, Jesus was cut off. He died and the Messiah was cut off. So what of the last three and a half years of this? It cannot, this is something that cannot be historically verified and proven as pretty much a lot of this stuff can. I mean, a lot of this stuff can, but in some viewpoints, almost none of it can be historically verified and proven. Um, Many scholars believe that at the end of this last three and a half years was when Stephen was stoned to death. If you remember, Stephen stood up before the Sanhedrin. He stood up before the whole council, Jewish council. He stood up before the high priest and presented his defense and a defense of the gospel. And what did they do? They rejected it and they stoned him. I believe right then the clock struck midnight on this 490 years prophecy. The clock struck midnight. What makes this rejection of the gospel by the Jews significant is that the high priest was present when this happened. He decreed it. When Stephen was stoned to death, oh, I just said that. Gosh, I keep getting ahead of myself. I know these notes better than I thought I did, I guess. I keep like rereading stuff I've already said. Jeez. So after this, what happens after this? So after this, after Stephen's stoned to death, Sometime after that, we see Jesus reveal himself to Saul in a blinding light, and Saul becomes Paul, right? In this encounter, Paul is released to go give the gospel to the Gentiles, right? All right, think about the significance of this. Look at Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16. There it is. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All right. Why was it to the Jew first? Because the scope, they had three and a half years until the scope of this 490 year prophecy came out and then they could take it to the Gentiles. That's what I believe. That's what I believe this says right here. Chew on it. <laughs> Chew on it. Let's look at Daniel 9.24 again. What was the purpose of these 70 weeks? If you could go ahead and throw 9.24 up there for me, John, right? So 70 weeks were decreed upon thy people and upon thy holy city, Jerusalem, to finish transgression. That's number one. To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness and vision and prophecy. This is specifically talking about this vision and prophecy that's been given to Daniel and to anoint the most holy. 
Can I tell you today that that's all, all of those things are exactly what Jesus did when he died on the cross? The transgression was finished in the old covenant. It was filled up when they rejected him for the last time there. Jesus made an end of sins when he died on the cross. He made reconciliation for iniquity when he died on the cross and rose again. He brought in everlasting righteousness, right? There's no longer any need for another sacrifice. Man, Jesus is the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands. In Daniel 2.44, let's scroll back up. In 2.44, where he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be crushed and never be destroyed. Um, Jesus set up his kingdom while he was on the earth. He started it. He established a new covenant in his blood that's far greater and far beyond the blood of any bulls or goats. Um, The kingdom of God is the mountain that will fill the whole earth. Right? Okay, if we want to look historically, we, we have a bad problem, especially in America. We get like tunnel vision. We, we look at just what's going on here because like there, there, there's, especially right now, there's, there's some crazy stuff going on, right? Like, like, like we've, lost, we've lost some ground in the U.S., right? But let, let's look at a historical context from the time of Jesus until now, all right? So the kingdom of God has grown from just in one place in the Middle East to where it is the largest religion on planet Earth, Right? I think this stat is still true, but there are more people becoming Christians every day today than at any time in history. The kingdom of God is growing and advancing. Can I tell you today, and I won't be able to get into this too far, but I I believe it's a lie that steals our inheritance that says that everything has to get worse and worse and worse before Jesus comes back. I don't believe the Bible teaches that at all. I believe that it's misplaced timing on prophecies. So speaking about paradigms again, when we have a framework of belief, when we have a framework of how we think things are supposed to lay out, our minds are great manipulators. We'll twist things, we'll manipulate things to make it fit, um, fit what we wanted to say. And biblical hermeneutics are, are really no different. There, there's, this, there's this, hermeneutics is just the interpretation of scripture. But there's this divide in, with biblical prophecy, does the time of the prophecy determine the nature of the fulfillment or does the nature of the fulfillment determine when it happens? I believe we can see when we look through history at these prophecies and others that the clock that God set in motion doesn't get interrupted. <laughs> He set it in motion. These things happened already. That has many, many more implications than I'm going to be able to get into today um, because I know this is a lot. Um, The kingdom of God was set up. um, Romans 14, 17 says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Right? It's not physical. It's not military might. Look at this. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What time is fulfilled? Do you think Jesus didn't know the prophecies of Daniel? Just saying. The kingdom is and always has been on a trajectory of growth since the gospel was released to go to the Gentiles. I believe with all my heart that this expansion will not stop until the return of Christ. Um, <laughs> I'm going to look into one. I'm going to look into one more thing. This isn't in my notes, but I just want to show you. So, at the end of the 70 weeks, this, this will only take about five more. So, you guys good with that? If you look at something else real quick, all right. So, at the end of that, that time has run out. Can you put up Matthew 24 for me, John Ray? Uh, oh, that's a good question. You know what? I'm going to open it up. Be turning to Matthew 24. Somebody play the Jeopardy music to just kind of fill in the gap. Da, 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 da. Are you guys okay? Is anybody going to stone me? All right. Come see me after. Thank you, Randy. Thank you very much. All right, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, let's start. Um, let's go to verse 3. I'm not going to tear into this too deep because it's just too much, but we're going to just kind of glaze over this. Starting at verse 3. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, talking about Jesus. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? There's three questions here. Let's remember, it's not all one question. The end of the age that they're talking about here there's only one biblical translation that translates that as world. The King James Version says the end of the world. And that kind of automatically puts people's minds on the very end of time. That's not what it is. Um, this isn't the Greek word cosmos right here, which talks about the planet. This is the Greek word aeon, or eons as you think about it, used in, used in English, an age. The end of the age, I believe, that's being talked about here is the end of the old covenant, the end of the age, the end of this time of prophecy. Do you guys agree that this is an easy conclusion to reach when we're just looking at these scriptures going through? We're not jumping through hoops. We're not like twisting stuff around. This is just what the scripture says. Jesus answered and said to them, so one thing to make mention of, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. From the Mount of Olives, you could see the temple. They're sitting looking back at the temple. All right. Another thing to remember as we read this passage I'm going to ask you a loaded question. Was this passage of scripture, was, was Jesus, in this passage of scripture, was he talking to us right here in 2023? No, no. Listen, all scripture was written for us, but not all of it was necessarily written to us. Right, it was all written for our benefit, but it wasn't written to us. Jesus had an audience in this scripture, he was talking to his disciples specifically about a specific subject. It's not good to take this and just like apply it to our own future because that's not what he was talking about here, all right? Do we agree with that paradigm, <laughs> that framework? All right. 
Jesus answered to them and said, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and no one mislead many people. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. I can't go into that deeply, but in the time between Jesus saying this and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, all these things happen. It is historically verifiable. You can read the writings of Josephus, who was commissioned as the Jewish historian by the Romans during that time. You can find that. Um, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. I promise if, if, if I get the chance to do this again, I'll go through this, this passage of scripture way more in depth. But um, they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. And because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will become cold. But the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. This is the gospel. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. This isn't talking about our future. This is talking about them in that time, what they were doing. The tribulation that the early believers went through in that period of time at the hands of the Jews was one of the most horrific things that happened in all of history. The destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem was one of the most horrific things that happened in all of history. It's not talked about much, but it was a terrible time. Um, there, were, there were famines to where mothers were eating their own children during this time. Um, so therefore, let's see, I'm going to skip down because there's one part that I want to see. Sorry, give me just a second. Because I wasn't planning on doing this. Okay, so another reason to know that this was talking about then, if we look at Matthew 24, verse 15, it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophets, talking about in that last week, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Are we standing in Judea right now? No, this isn't talking to us. This is talking about them. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out of his house. This was commonplace in the day. They, had, um, they would have a living space on the top of their house and they would have stairs down to the street where they could flee. So it's saying, if you're out on your housetop, don't take the time to go into your house. You've got to get out. Did you know that it is historically recorded that because of their knowledge of this prophecy and what it meant that almost none of the early Christians when the siege of Jerusalem started, almost all of them made it out alive because they took heed to this and fled Judea. They knew the scripture. They knew what it was talking about. That's amazing. Um, if I can find it, the last thing I want to show you today Jesus uh, says, he says, see these things. Um, he's talking about the temple. He says, you see all these stones here? You see these beautiful buildings? He says, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another, right? He said that. There's a reason he said that. Forgive me, I'm paraphrasing here, but... So in the mortar between the stones of the temple, there were precious metals. There was gold in the mortar. 
talks about that. It's recorded in history that when the Romans destroyed the temple, they took the stones off one from another and they scraped the gold out, fulfilling exactly what Jesus said, that not one stone would be left upon another. It was like it was bulldozed. So I'm just doing this to show you that there's way more in here that, that, that gets way deeper and it, gets, and it starts to really create friction against some other beliefs. But let me tell you, if it glorifies Jesus more in his finished work, that's what I want to chase after, right? That's what I want to chase after. Let me tell you, Jesus is still coming back. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like <laughs> speaking, spitting heresy up here. Jesus is still coming back. He's coming back, right? But we don't have hell on earth to look forward to is what I'm saying. See, the church has given in to a lazy, a very lazy disposition in saying that, oh, all this bad stuff's got to happen anyway, so we're just going to turn it over. In fact, in like the last 50 years, the church has turned over almost all the institutions in this country. Right? They have, because like we're not in positions of leadership. And I know a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people that the, the view that it doesn't matter, we're getting out of here like in a minute anyway, has been to that detriment. I, I know people who didn't go to college because they held to that view, right? Listen to me. We have a responsibility to take the kingdom of God into all the earth. We have the power living within us to effectuate change in the earth, right? I see a lot of wheels turning. I probably shouldn't have went into the Matthew 24 thing because there's way more to that than I can get into today. But did this make sense to y'all? Well, good. That's great. I'm glad. I'm really glad. Um, I thank Ryan for the opportunity. Me and, me and him have talked about this for a long time. Um, Thank you guys for, for looking at this. And I, I promise the two goals, I hope I've achieved them today. I hope I've achieved them today that we glorified Jesus in his finished work and inspired hope. That's what I'm saying. Many people stay away from passages like this because they think it's, it's something terrible in the future. But Daniel's 70 weeks were fulfilled is, is what I'm saying. I, I believe that with all my heart. I don't believe there's a secondary fulfillment of it coming. I believe it was fulfilled once and for all. So, um, let's stand together. I'll say this again. I, I, I don't say things like this just to stir the pot. That's not the point. The point's not to just say, oh, look at this shiny new thing we found. But if there's something that is more true to a scripture interpreting scripture, and when we seek it out, I want to find it. I want to find it. I want to inspire hope in you all. Just remember, do you remember Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God, where he said the kingdom of God is like a little bit of leaven that you put, and then it causes, it spreads and causes the whole Loaf to rise, right? The kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. It starts small, but then it becomes the largest tree in the garden. It doesn't say there aren't other plants in the garden. If we want to think about that, it doesn't mean that there's not evil in the earth while the kingdom of God is growing, but the kingdom of God becomes the largest plant in the garden. 
that doesn't sound like we all get taken out to me. That sounds like the kingdom of God keeps going and going and going. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you so much for prophetic fulfillment. God, I thank you for the things that you spoke to the prophets long, long ago. Jesus, if there's any paradigms that we hold to, any, any thoughts, any patterns of belief that we hold to, God, I, I pray that we wouldn't hold on to anything that you don't want us to hold on to, God. Lord, I pray that only the true things that you want to stick today would stick in people's minds. God, if there was any chaffing and I just asked you, you would blow it away because I'm not seeking to upend anything, God. We just seek the truth of your word. And Lord, God, we ask for your empowerment to go with us. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be with us everywhere we go this week. I just declare this morning that this is a room full of earth shakers in here. This is a room full of kingdom diplomats in here. We carry the kingdom of God inside us and we can operate in it wherever we go. It affects every area of life, not just inside these four walls, but outside, God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We bless your holy name. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thank you guys so much for coming this morning.